we'll hear from our second speaker, Ruth Scobie, and then we'll do questions at the end. Uh, you just, okay, Ruth is just handing out uh, handout. Um, Ruth Scobie is uh, a lecturer at Mansfield College, Oxford, and is currently completing uh, her book on 18th century and romantic, uh, sorry to bring up the, the book, Celebrity. No one talk about the book. She is definitely not completing a book on 18th century and romantic <laughs> representations of Oceania. Oceania and celebrity. Yeah. Oceania and celebrity. Um, from 2013 to 2016, she ran the very successful Celebrity Research Network, which gave those of us who study celebrity uh, at Oxford a, a really nice intellectual home. Her uh, paper is Pre-Truth Media and the Female Imposter, the case of Harriet, um, Elizabeth Harriet Grieve. Uh, there should be a, a handout going out, going around, just with some bits and pieces of information. Um, so hopefully this is sort of based on an, an article which hopefully will come out um, in the next year or so as part of a book on uh, an edited collection on 18th century celebrity. But this is kind of me taking a step back and looking at the process of uh, researching and writing that article to some extent. Um, and also I just think it's interesting and it might follow on quite nicely from, uh, from your talk. I hope. Uh, in Society of the Spectacle, a book which has in the last couple of years seen a resurgence in popularity, Guy Debord describes celebrity as, quote, the spectacular representation of a living human being. To be a celebrity, he continues, means specialising in the seemingly lived. In this paper, I'm going to give a necessarily highly speculative sketch of the 18th century imposter Elizabeth Harriet Grieve, a mistress of the seemingly lived, and a, a very brief sketch of her contemporary representation. I want to frame this sketch with the suggestion that the process of writing or attempting to write Grieve's life might provide insights into the kind of sensation of epistemic vacuum involved in reading British media, and primarily the newspaper, between about 1750 and about 1790. Now, de Boer, of course, sees his spectacular celebrity as the direct product of 20th century late capitalism. But I also want to note that this much earlier figure of Elizabeth Grieve embodies some specific anxieties about truth, spectacle, anonymous authorship, raised by this 18th century epistemic vacuum. And also that some very similar anxieties have notably re-emerged with a certain amount of force in the last two or three years. So since I started trying to write about Elizabeth Grieve a couple of years ago, a new term has actually been added to the Oxford English Dictionary, um, which was even their word of the year for 2016, post-truth. That is, quote, relating to circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion <coughs> than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, specifically, these circumstances seem to include a sense of data overload, the increasing dominance of a fragmented, decentralised, anonymised online media, a growing awareness of the potential manipulation of this media, which leads, seems to lead not so much to kind of coherent strategies to assess authority as to a general abandonment of the concept or valuing of authority. Connecting these problems to the concept of celebrity 
Chris Rochek has recently described how the structures and conventions of online communication have created a world populated by, quote, familiar strangers. That is, apparitions whom we never encounter and never really get to know. Such apparitions, we are warned, are on the one hand just words and pictures, pure persona, but on the other seem to have an increasingly powerful influence through their appeal to emotions and personal belief. So they can kind of reach out disembodied through the screen. They can shape what we read, what we buy, uh, what we think, even who we vote for, even as we are reminded and continually remind ourselves that they may not be who or what they say they are. And at this moment, like in the last few days, um, some of you may have read about Jenna Abrahams. Uh, Jenna Abrahams being this kind of Twitter personality who got in political arguments, had 70,000 followers, and turns out not to be a real person at all, but to be kind of an invention in, of several Russian men in a troll farm. Now, to return to late 18th century London, late 18th century Londoners see themselves as living through similarly turbulent times, witnesses to, to borrow Eric Bond's phrase, the birth of the print-saturated city, at the centre of an overwhelming explosion of new textual technology. Since the lapsing of the Licensing Act at the end of the previous century, and this is kind of a well-worn narrative, I think, by now, central control of printed texts seemed to have gradually broken down, Printers responded to consumer demand by producing greater and greater quantities of cheaper and cheaper print, more than one person could ever read in their lives. And the content of this print, um, slightly less well-worn narrative potentially, is largely decentralised, what would now be called kind of anonymously crowdsourced material. By the 1760s in particular, the pages of newspapers, which I'm particularly interested in, were filled with news, essays, commentaries, announcements, which were written and submitted not by professional reporters or writers, but by ordinary readers, who expected their contributions to be printed largely unchecked, unedited, and without any attribution. In other words, if you have a story that for whatever reason you want to be reported, you can just write it down, post it anonymously, um, to a newspaper printer of your choice and assuming they think it's well written enough or interesting enough they'll print it if it makes good copy if it's entertaining or controversial or if it simply fills a gap in a slow news week it's very likely to be picked up and reprinted and recirculated in more newspapers in London and then often beyond and even beyond kind of national borders so the result is this kind of practically unique, unprecedented public sphere, which, in which, as visitors from other countries marvelled, anybody could, quote, insert his, or indeed her, opinions on any public matter in the newspapers with a certainty of being read a thousand times, and in theory with no fear of reprisals or prejudice. That is, I would argue, it created one of the preconditions of modern celebrity by providing a route by which ordinary strangers could make themselves appear familiar to a mass audience. But of course, and this is particularly obvious, I think, at the present moment, 
it also enables untraceable, unquantifiable instances of manipulation and deception. After all, the story that you send to the newspapers doesn't actually have to be true. And your publicised opinions and commentary might be less sincere than strategic. So newspaper readers in this period begin to see themselves as navigating a maze as they read. They're bewildered by the possibilities for gossip, malicious abuse, blackmail, random hoaxes, disguised self-promotion, ventriloquism, propaganda, misinformation, and all of this interwoven with advertising. So the contents of newspapers, Charles Dibdin concludes in 1784, are, quote, at best, vague and unsupported conjectures, and at worst, and more often, injurious falsehoods. So notorious cases at the time include um, shopkeepers who publish announcements that their rivals are either bankrupt or dead. <laughs> this happens, like, a lot, not just once, but the, and you get these wars between two shopkeepers, both of them saying the other one is dead. Um, Theatre managers and actors who habitually wrote all their own reviews, including bad reviews intended to provoke outrage. Fake reports of shipwrecks for the purposes of stock manipulation. And one particularly notorious case of an adventurer and newspaper editor who team up to publish a libel about a rich heiress in order to provoke a fake duel which will trick said heiress into marrying the adventurer. These stories are all too complicated to get into, but hopefully you get the general idea. So some commentators worry, for obvious reasons, that naive or uneducated, and especially female readers, are vulnerable to being swept up in all of this. But in general, though, for most readers, the play between truth and fantasy, the need for kind of detective work, or the willing suspension of disbelief, is actually all part of the game. And it's thought to keep newspaper reading active, even kind of dialectic. The idea that newspaper printers had some sort of ethical responsibility to print the truth is very rarely taken seriously. So if our news media is kind of post-truth in its abandonment of clear journalistic standards and responsibilities, 18th century newspapers could be seen as, this is such a glib phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway, pre-truth insofar as those standards and responsibilities did not yet exist or at least didn't yet dominate over demands for a liberty of the press, which was assumed to require this forum for anonymous authorship. Okay, so in the early 1770s, a 50-year-old woman calling herself Elizabeth Harriet Grieve made use of these pre-truth newspapers for a crime that was in itself actually quite banal. Grieve advertised herself as a broker, who was able to acquire government posts and sinecures for her clients. Now these posts, uh, things like sort of at courts, in army and navy administration, uh, the tax office, particularly customs for some reason, these are highly sought after because they provide you with often a nice steady income, lots of opportunities for bribery, and often involve almost no work, essentially nominal duties. They're basically used as kind of within the structures of of bribery in, in government. But also, for obvious reasons, they're very difficult to get hold of because you've got to have the connections as well as the money to get in front of the right people and get your name known. So brokers, like Mrs. Grieve, offers a, a kind of insider status. They say, in return for a cut of the bribe, effectively, I can introduce you to the right people. 
So, for example, uh, to a coach carver named William Kidwell, Grieve promises to get the post of clerk of the dry stores in the Navy's victualling office, for which he pays her £30. It doesn't sound like a particularly glamorous job, but it's got loads of opportunity for making lots of extra money by cheating the Navy. Uh, another client, William Kent, claimed that he'd paid her £230, quite a substantial sum of money, abandoned his business in Berkshire and moved his wife and children to London because Grieve pledged to get him appointed as a customs supervisor. Now, these men believed that the Honourable Elizabeth Harriet Grieve could get them what they wanted because she appeared not to just be respectable and honest, but powerful and well-connected. So she dresses expensively, she talks like a lady, she lives in a fine house in Tower Hill um, with her husband. She also employs an agent who is gloriously named Francis Crook, which probably <laughs> should have given them a tip-off, but doesn't. Um, she had her own carriage, uh, which is seen pulling up outside the houses of the most important politicians in London, including the Prime Minister, Lord North, who was thought to be her cousin, particularly uh, close to Charles James Fox, a young MP regarded as, quote, the hopes of Britain. And the carriages of most of the fashionable world are seen in turn waiting outside her home, where the visiting cards of aristocracy were kind of discreetly displayed by the door. Elizabeth Grieve herself was thought to have a fortune of £10,000 and an estate in Herefordshire worth £1,500 a year. And this had been confirmed by at least two newspaper stories identifying her as the only daughter of, quote, the Honourable Thomas Willoughby, late of Hereford, and the only heir to the newly dead Sir Hamborough Bavanning. The problem that became clear as the years pass is that none of this is real. There was, I love this, I spent ages proving this, there is no such person as Sir Hamborough Bavanning. The Honourable Thomas Willoughby does exist, but uh, he was the living MP for Nottinghamshire and had no living children. I'd never heard of Elizabeth Grieve. The newspaper stories that seemed to confirm this had, I believe, been planted by the Greaves to bolster their advertised claims of wealth and influence. So in reality, there's no inheritance. Grieve is not from an elite family. In fact, she seemed to have no family at all. Her social contacts with the great and good were faked with the help of bribed servants, forged visiting cards, and at least in Fox's case, a sort of certain amount of judicious money lending. And so in November 1773, the whole performance collapses as Grieve is arrested and charged by angry clients with failing to get them the posts for which they paid. And then in court, it was revealed that she already had a criminal record and had previously been sentenced to transportation. So as one newspaper reported, quote, all her noble alliances in blood and friendship vanished in a moment. But even after this moment of exposure, concrete facts about Grieve prove disconcertingly elusive, as she continues without hesitation or remorse to simply tell new stories as the old ones were discredited. So in court, she made outrageous accusations um, about the sexual behavior of the plaintiffs waved around a set of manuscript letters which she claimed were written by Charles James Fox. She claimed that her husband had forced her to act out the scheme or that Francis Crook was the mastermind. As a result, 
public sympathy for the victims, um, one of whom was supposed to have died of a broken heart, was rapidly replaced with amusement and wonder at her abilities to perform. Horace Walpole wrote that, quote, Mrs. Greaves' parts are in universal admiration, whatever Charles's are. And Walpole also compared Greaves' schemes and performance to the <coughs> debut performance he'd seen by the actress Elizabeth Hartley. She's beautiful indeed, he writes of Hartley, but has not quite so much sense in her countenance as Mrs. Greave, and I think will never be so half so good an actress. The key difference, of course, with Greaves' performance was that it never let up. It never allowed the public to feel that they'd seen the real person behind the role. Moreover, stories about Greaves' imposture were enmeshed in the uncertainties of the print media, which, as I've said, have made it possible in the first place. In 1774, for example, while Grieve waited in prison, a series of puffs, um, kind of adverts thinly disguised as, as news articles, appeared in various newspapers predicting the publication of her memoirs and the letters from Fox. And these culminated in a long open letter signed the injured Elizabeth Harriet Grieve and published in the Middlesex Journal. And the letter attacks what it calls Fox's infringements on the liberty of the press. And it threatens to publish evidence of his corruption so that, quote, the public will easily judge who is the most deserving of censure. But of course, as readers would have realised, the authorship of these adverts and this letter is by no means certain. Anybody could have written the letter and used Greaves' name. So there's no way of knowing now or then if the author was Grieve seeking justice or Grieve seeking revenge or to, to blackmail Fox, or if it's written by a publisher who wants to promote a memoir, and if so, if the memoir is real or fake, or, and I think this is the most likely, but I don't know, if the letter was really by a political enemy of Fox who wanted to discredit him by reviving this scandalous association. And all of these are possible, and I think it's characteristic that the only text that we have in Greaves' own name is quite likely not by her, but might be, and without further external evidence is ultimately unattributable and thus entirely undecipherable. Similar uncertainties surround any attempt to piece together Greaves' life, which for contemporaries rapidly devolved into rumour and invention, just as outlandish or more as the stories which Greaves had told about herself. My own story of Greaves' life before 1773, um, which is kind of on the handout, depends on traces in court records and newspaper articles scattered across decades with no reliable way to establish a continuous identity except for these repeated patterns in the performances and lies that she tells. Now you may or may not find these connections convincing and that's kind of my point. So I'll let you have a look at the kind of evidence and make your own assessments on the handout if you're interested. Um, I will jump forward to what I think I have of sort of 1769, a picture of a woman with a long career as a small-time crook, an imposter free and living in London. And this is the point at which Grieve seems to have switched tactics from general purpose con woman to um, taking advantage of this increasing reach and openness of the newspapers. And it's this switch which makes Grieve, in contemporary culture, not just another female imposter, 
but an embodiment of the possible reach and danger of celebrity. So grieve becomes, in that overused phrase, famous for being famous, for being known, and for being ultimately and entirely unknowable. Just as this tension within newspaper reading could be a source of both anxiety and pleasure, representations of Grieve's story sometimes celebrate and sometimes warn against her powers of deception. So in some of the satirical poems written on the story, um, published while Grieve is still in prison, that's the very topical, her imposture is presented as carnivalesque. Quote, a tale surpassing every other tale to circulate all through this tattling town. As Grieve, the witty female underdog, briefly triumphs over gullible middle-class coach carvers, but also the all-powerful corrupt establishment personified in Charles James Fox. So, for example, an anonymous first letter in the Westminster magazine, which is on the back of your handout, has Grieve boaster Fox. You call it female artifice, chicane, worthy of thieves and nymphs of Drury Lane. But tell me, Charles, for thou alone can tell, is there not artful merit in the bell who can impose Trepan the very rogue that even cheats the bearded synagogue? This is a reference to um, Fox's habits of borrowing money. So here, Grieve's spectacular representation of a living human being, her manipulation of the uncertainties of celebrity, is labelled in terms of a specifically female artifice. So this is a long-lived discourse about women's powers of treachery, trickery and deception. And the poem goes on to ally Grieve to a long stream of contemporary female celebrities also perceived as making careers out of duping men. It names well-known mistresses, courtesans, dancers, actresses, and celebrates their power to seduce and deceive as a temporary revenge for the male exploitation of, quote, hapless woman. But the poem also plays on this double meaning of the word artifice, not just deception, but technical skill, artistry, ingenuity. There is artful merit in these performances, imagined as highly theatrical as well as specifically feminine. And the poem goes on to describe a kind of a very strange anecdotal scene in which Grieve is supposed to have painted Fox's face with cosmetics um, to beautify him for this imaginary West Indian bride that she promises him um, if he does what she says. The seductive female trickster is, of course, a stock figure, but what's strikingly new about the poem is the bewilderingly global nature of Grieve's transformation. The imposter, having arrived from America, um, writes on the eve of her voyage back to, across the Atlantic, and Fox, tangled up in her schemes, kind of bubbled full, is compared successively to an African, a tattooed Tahitian, and a blackbeard Jew. Now, these images reflect a, a racist discourse of political satire, but also the sense of displacement and disorientation experienced by Greaves' readers, who are described as, quote, bubbled and ravished by her artifices, like an audience watching a harlequinade or a showman displaying curiosities. In The Cousiners, and I'm going to talk really quickly about a stage this stage adaptation of the story, um, written and performed by Samuel Foote in 1774, Grieve is similarly depicted as having the power to disorient and lead astray. She's fictionalised as Mrs. Fleesome, terribly subtle Foote was, um, 
who lures various gullible clients from the country to the city, from Ireland to America, from England to India. And she smuggles into London various foreign figures, including a West Indian slave, a Nabob MP, a Jewish man of fashion. So this rootless liminal figure of Mrs. Fleeson becomes closely associated with metropolitan fears about the effects of mobility, of immigration and emigration. The idea that, quote, all the world are gone mad about running beyond sea. As well as what Foote presents um, in the dialogue on the handout as the treachery of the American rebels. Fleetham is um, introduced as the kind of archetypal American rebel, person who's turned against her own nationality, her, the authority of the Britons in America. And like the American revolutionary doctrines of individualism and liberty, she returns to the metropolis to, quote, circulate privately and publicly in taverns, coffee houses, journals, chronicles, morning and evening posts and currents. Now, compared to the contemporary newspaper reports and poems, Foote's play treats grieve with way more hostility. It's a cautionary tale here about the dangerous spectacle of pre-truth print culture. And the comedy closes with a kind of conservative celebration of knowing your place. The English families and the gullible clients who want to travel using grieve services are warned, quote, there are trees that won't bear transplanting. They thrive best in their natural soil. Falling for the print seductions of female artifice can only lead here to ruin and mockery. Now, a few months after Foote's play was first performed at the Haymarket, Elizabeth Grieve was finally found guilty and sentenced to transportation back to America. She left for Virginia in a convict ship in November 1775. And if we believe the newspapers, she returned to London in 1782, by this time in her 60s, only to find that her celebrity had made her too recognisable to make a living using the same trick again. So if the aim or an aim of life writing is to look beyond Du Bois' seemingly lived, beyond the spectacular representation to the real woman, and reliably determine the distance between the two, the life of Elizabeth Harriet Grieve would seem to offer almost no possibility to be written at all. There must have been a material individual behind or at least participating in these performances. But my experience of trying to make her out and piece together her life echoes that of the 18th century audiences, gossips, writers, and indeed lawyers who attempted to find their way through the maze of her textual celebrity. There are moments when the real Harriet Grieve, or perhaps Elizabeth Willoughby, seem, perhaps because of my imagination, to become visible but never for long, and more importantly, never beyond reasonable doubt. And I think it's in this uncertainty that one aspect of 18th century female celebrity may, hopefully, become most clear. Thank you.